Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. So let's jump into it. Verse 23. Uh, I'll, I'll read the previous verse as our, as our norm, just to get us moving. In the previous verse, we learned Vatelet Ben that she, Moshe's new wife Zipporah, gave birth to a son, Vaikrad Shemo Gershom, and then he gave him the name of Gershom. We discussed many possible derivations of the name, even given the explanation in the Torah. Kiamar, for he said, Ger Haiti, I am a stranger, I was a stranger. Tense is weird in biblical Hebrew. Be'eretz nochriya, in a strange land. And again, I don't want to go all the way back into it, but is that a reference to Moshe's current situation, feeling like a stranger in Midian? Is it a reference to his experience uh, growing up um, in what eventually showed itself to be a strange land because he was a Hebrew growing up as an Egyptian? Hard to know. We leave that ambiguous. Okay. So now we go to verse 23. Um, hey, Rick, nice to see you. It's been, I think it's, I think you missed a session. So it's good to see your face back. Thank uh, you. You want to read verse 23? Sure. Vayhi vayamim harabim hahem vayamot kamatskatan there melech mitzrayim vayayanchu v'nei Yisrael min ha'avodah vayizaku on the iron vata'al shavatam el ha'elohim min ha'avodah Good. That's lot. Actually, I, I think we actually did read this verse last week. We didn't do the Rashi's, right? I remember that uh, Carol read it, but let's let's translate it again. Okay, so uh, Vayhi, um, with a big trope on it, don't know why. Um, maybe lots of things happened during that time. Vayamim harabim, hahem. It came to pass uh, after many days. Uh, or, or maybe those many days, hahem. Right, Dur- during these many days, because the by some kind of a during or in, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he, he died, uh, the king of Egypt. Vayeanchu, um, looks like Anachnu, but um, um, that's the sighing part. Vene Yisrael, Vayeanchu, they sighed, is the translation here. Min okay. from the work. From the service, and this is a translation here. Oh, no, Vaizaku, that's the uh, that's the cry out. That's that's not a sigh. Oh no, and they cried. So they sighed and then they cried. Yes. Um, Vataal, and that rose up like Aliyah going up. Uh, Shavatam, uh, um, their cry. It says again, but I'm sure it's a different word. It's a different root. Um, came up to God, or the angels, if you want to look at it that way, because of the ha there, but um, yeah, that's God, um, uh, from their service, which isn't necessary to be there at all. You could have just ended the thing on El Halloween. Good. So I like that in the translation, you've actually um, listed out a few questions, right? One one of the questions that you ended on is, why is the Minha Avodah repeated? It seems to be that if they're crying out from the Avodah, labor, and if their cry out is re- rising up to the heavens, it's, it isn't, it's, the, it's the cry out from that very Avodah. 
We also talked about the fact that in this verse, particularly if you look at the third word of the next verse, we have a series of synonyms for crying out, geshrying, complaining, pleading, right? We have vaye anchu in the verbal form from the root anach that they groaned perhaps. Vayizaku, zayin ayin kuf, and they and they cried. Sha'avatam shin vav ayin. So their cry or their plea went up. And then in the next verse, which we'll get to in a minute, God heard their na'akatam, their na'aks. Um, all versions of the same concept. Interestingly, the way Uncleus translates it, uh, Uncleus turns those four roots into three and basically treats sha'avatam, their cry that went up, as the same word as what was heard in the next verse, even though the Hebrew makes a difference, shavatam and na'akatam, it makes sense that the thing that went up is the thing that was heard, and Uncleus translates them both as kibleton, from the root kabal, um, right? The, the, thi- the thing that is to be received, the, the, the received prayer. Messages. He, doesn't, he doesn't give two different um, Aramaic translations to that word. Okay, but that will that that's in the next verse. So let's pause here before we look at the Rashi. Aside from the questions that um, that you hinted at, Rick, uh, anything else that strikes us in the verse is worthy of a question before we see Rashi. Renee, I would have thought that they would have been happy about the Pharaoh dying. Excellent question, right? And you're anticipating Rashi. Why, if we're learning that he died? Why are they crying out at that moment, right? Now, you could, you could provide an answer in your mind, of course. Maybe the next king was worse. There, there, there's always good answers to questions, but it's an excellent question. We, Unless we, it's we, a cry of happiness, like joy. You know, we cry when we that, have a baby. Except that the, that the Torah specifically says that they cried mina abadah from the labor. So it's interesting. There's, there's a relief of the, from the immediate source of their horror, which is the, which is the presence of the king, because he dies, and the next thing that happens is that they cry out. Why didn't they cry out before him? Etc. Good. Elon. So it's not clear for, to me whether um, their outcry, whether God recognized their outcry because it, it was an outcry period, or whether they, it was recognized specifically because it was an outcry as a result of their work. Great, right? And, and particularly if you, if you connect the first phrase of the next verse that we'll read a little more slowly later, was it the first time they cried? You may ask, right? Like, so why, why is God hearing this cry? Is God hearing this cry because they haven't cried? Is God hearing this cry because this was a different type of cry? What kind of God only listens to a cry when you cry? I wouldn't, shouldn't a God know what's happening inside your hearts? So this whole notion of, of, of a string of events, death of the oppressor, that's Aleph. Crying up from the labor, that's bad, although it doesn't really follow. And then God hearing the cry, um, th- there's something about that string that, that begs lots of questions. Good. Uh, Rick? Just looking at the Minha Bodog, and so the, the service, the, the labor they had before with the, with the previous king, and, and then it, it's made worse with the next king. Um, and uh, it took a long time. Again, the trope at the beginning um, so, but again, it doesn't answer why God didn't answer the cries beforehand, but it, it intensifies when the, the new administration comes in and makes things worse is what I'm guessing. So, right, so that's what one Rashi in some ways 
will not go there, but that's one of the classic explanations for the question that was raised before. If, if indeed he really died and that's the source of their crying, not the oppression that he had done beforehand, then this must be this Jewish nervosa that it could always be worse. Right. In fact, um, from the volume that I'm reading, I, there's, um, um, there's a little commentary underneath the text called Pshutosha Mikra, right? It's, it's, it's a volume of Rashi, but it's also the editor's trying to give you his sense of the simplest meaning of the, of the words itself, even before you look at Rashi. And on this line, Rashi says, I mean, this guy says, hold on a second. Uvenei Yisrael hayu doagin. The Israelites were worried. Mehemshech hashibud, for the entire time of their enslavement. Ayadei hamelech hachadash. So the kingdom might come. However hard they were, they were, this editor kind of reads back into the Israelite um, psychology. We're nervous about what's going to come next. It's so Jewish in some ways. Um, Larry and then Sue, or Larry, Diane, and then Sue. Right, before you speak, Larry, I just want to point something out with, with awe. Are you, Leonard, eating matzah? That's, you know, there, is a, there is a tradition that on the um, second day of Kislev, that you're supposed to eat rash, uh, matzah and peanut butter if you're selling Rashi. So I, I'm amazed that you know that, that, that very obscure source. So well done. Well done. I wasn't going to mention, I want to embarrass anybody for not doing it, but well done that you picked up on that tradition from the... He's doing uh, it because the connection to Pharaoh. Exactly. <laughs> Here. Wow, matzah, matzah and peanut butter, that really, I'm almost ready to, to turn off the class and go have some. <laughs> uh, and besides which, you have matzah and bamidbar. Aha. Uh, thank, thank God for kidney oat. Okay, with peanut, peanuts aren't even kidney oat. They're kidney oat adjacent. Okay, Dan and Larry, go ahead. A very simple question. Does this suggest that the Israelites had not cried out from their oppression beforehand? Right. This is really weird. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so Elon went sort of in that direction as well. What's, what, what is the, what is the um, series of events that we're being exposed to and is it all happening for the first time, right? Is, and, and, and if it's the first time they cried out, why are they crying out upon his death as opposed to crying out when he started killing babies, right? Good. Sue? Um, well, they, on that, they, they may have been afraid to cry out while he was alive, that the crying out might have just you know, rained upon them some horror. But I, I want to just say that it, the whole thing starts by saying... Um, meaning that it's over many days and we have all these things we don't necessarily I mean it does seem like it's three consecutive things they cried and they sighed and they but but um, the rabim means that they I, I just picture that it that there was um, you know like a swelling and shifting amoeba of all this um, gluch, uh following his it's a, you know, it's a real word. It's impressive to use the word amoeba and gluch in the same <laughs> sentence, and you have you have done it. Good, right? So you're 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 going in you're going in two directions. One, like we we talk often in this class about how to figure out or how to think through how much time is passing in between the verses, because the Torah doesn't often give us chronological stage direction, and now it does. And the question is, what does it mean? What, right. what are, how many days are Yamim Rabbi? Many days? Is that six? Is it four years? Right. And I'm going to kind of give away the store a bit. 
Rashi's question is is actually one level up. What is this section doing here? We were just Mo, Moshe just got married, right? And if you look ahead to um, three verses later, the beginning of chapter three, verse one, we're back with Moshe and it being a shepherd. So it's 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 like a scene change, right? Like Wayne's World. Right? We've been with Moshe and Yitro, and now. During these many days, we're, we're, we're being reminded back what's happening in Egypt, and then we're going back to Midian. Like, wh- wh- why is this scene changing, right? Uh, it reminds me of the, of the, the language in uh, Joseph and the Technicolor um, Dreamcoat when we finish with Joseph, and the narrator says, back at the other end of the hill, Joseph is doing fine in jail. Like, he keeps, he keeps going back and forth in between what's happening to Joseph in jail and Joseph in Egypt versus what's happening, the Israelites, uh, Jacob and his family. So what's this whole section doing here in general? Um, before we, I get Marshall's question, whenever I think about this notion, which Rashi is going to read very differently, by the way, as to why they cried out when he died, um, I have a very, very personal re- relationship with that question. Some of you may know, because I've been open about it, that as a middle school, as a elementary school student and in a middle, middle school student, I was bullied, bullied pretty mercilessly. I was, I was an easy target, and I had no defense, and there were some real jerks um, in, in my neighborhood and my school. And I remember the emotional and psychological feeling of holding it together in, in the moment and not wanting to, like, let go. But as soon as I got off the bus and got into my parents' car, that's when I would cry, right? So I have, I have this asso- powerful association with with being able to somehow withstand, as it were, the oppression. And it did feel like oppression when I was 11. Um, and once the, once the direct oppression was removed, there was space to actually cry out. I wasn't going to cry out in the middle of it. Um, so that's my association whenever I think about this verse. Again, Rashi answers it very, very differently. Marshall, Bavakasha. Yeah, uh, I guess I don't understand the phrase, Vayhi vayamim harabim hahem, except... Robert Alter seems to give me an insight as to what it might mean, where he says, and it happened when a long time had passed mm. that the king of Egypt died. And somewhat in little contrast to what you were commenting about Rabbi Clickfeld, where you said that the Avadim thought things would get worse. The JPS commentary to the Torah makes a different perspective. It says it was established practice in Egypt for a new king to celebrate his accession to the throne by granting amnesty to those guilty of crimes, by releasing prisoners, and by freeing slaves. So maybe it should have been a, a very happy day. And so here you have this contrast. You announce the death of the king, it should be good, and suddenly, by Yeon Hu, that the people groaned. And you have a series of four verbs which indicate their continued sense of suffering. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Um, yeah um, the, sometimes the easiest words to translate in the Torah are the hardest words to figure out what they're doing right so there's no vocabulary question on what the word word vayahi or bayamim or harabim or hahem mean right and even if we could translate it different ways you, you gave us altar translation which is actually uh, is it alt- yeah you gave us altar uh, Everett Fox does something a little more simply it was, comma, many years later, comma, the king of Egypt died. He doesn't put like a, like a when or a that in there. Um, and it's still 
remains for us to figure out what, why it's important for us to know that data, right? Why is it important for us to know that it, it's a lot of time? And we know what the words mean, but what's, what's, what's being actually conveyed? Um, Joel. And then after Joel, we'll go to Rick, and then we're going to go to Rashi. Where'd you go, Joel? There you go. Okay. Well, well, just to, to respond to, to Marshall, I'm assuming the logical explanation is that they put all their hope in this tradition that when the Pharaoh finally died, that they would be released. So they were biding their time, and then they found out the, the, the Pharaoh died and nothing changed. Then they knew they were screwed. Mm, got it. Got it. Aha. Uh-huh. So it, rather than, right, so they had hold, held on hope that things might change. They didn't. Uh, now, now, now this is becoming um, more than episodic. It's perpetual. Okay. Rick, last question, comment, and then we're going to look at the Rashi. Uh, just a little trope, Josh. Um, this uh, Tilishak Katana on the front, um, I looked back. Um, it's the first one in Shmot because they're rare. And um, the next one is in the next chapter, verse 4, when God calls to Moses from the bush, Vaikra. God, God is calling. So um, I just thought it was interesting that um, those two um, uh, pop out. But um, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just momentous that it's, it's uh, taking so long. I don't, I don't know why they would put a Vaihi, a Wada Tulishakadana on the Vaihi otherwise. But um, it's the, fir- the first one in Shemot. Romesh. Finished with the third aliyah of Parshat Shmoh, and it's the first katana. I know there's been at least one gedola, uh, but I, I'll, I'll believe you if it's the first katana. It's yeah. It's um, not that rare, Trup. I mean, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty, pretty... In the list of trope, it is. It's Pazer, Zarka, Segol, and then the, the Talishas huh. on rarity. Got it. Okay, anyway. thank you for that. Anyway. All right. Since you're unmu- un- unmuted... Uh, and since you're the reader, look at the Rashi. Depending on which version of the Rashi you have, this might be one of those situations where you're going to have um, parentheses around the Rashi with a little I bit do. of asterisk. Okay, I do. Um, occasionally, we get a version of that where there's a Rashi that's made it into our text, but the origin of it is a little obscure. Sometimes we have a note. We don't actually have it this time in our version, right? If you're doing it out of the, the Torah Chaim, this one does not say anything different about this Rashi. Sometimes we have a, a note that says, Betfus Rishon Leita. In the first printing, it's not there. This one, <clears throat> not again in our version, but in other versions of Rashi, including another book that I'm looking at right now, there's something that says, Berashi Yashan. Is that what yours says, Rick? Berashi Yashan? Um, no, I just, Silverman. I just have um, the beginning of the parentheses, Vayihi Bayamim Harabim Hahem. And then that goes all the way um, to Halalu. And then there's another, there's two entries for Vaya, Vayamot Melech Mitzrayim. Uh-huh. So yes, was, this, may, this may or may not be original to Rashi. That's all I want to say here. Okay, mm-hmm. so why don't you read that right? Okay, so the first four words, Vayihi, Vayamim Harabim Hahem. Okay, so Shehaya Moshe Gar B'Midyan. Um that Moses uh, lived in Midian. Right. Now, I want to pause right there because Rashi is doing something very subtle. You know, you, you know, there was kind of an implied ellipsis in this phrase. And it was during those days, dot, dot, dot. And we asked the question, or one of us has a question, which days? 
So the way that Rashi writes this comment, or pseudo Rashi, if, if you will, is that sometimes Rashi Rashi's comment is explaining uh, something in the verse. Sometimes he's almost continuing the verse. So he's the way he's writing this one, he's suggesting the way you should read the verse is as follows. And it was during those days, which days? The days that Moshe was living as a sojourner in Midian. So he's 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 using those first words of his comment to finish off the meaning of that phrase. Those what, what's the hahim? One of you asked that question. Which days? Ah, the days that Moses was early on in his sojourn in Midian. Yes. Avayamot Melech Mitzrayim is without the vowels, so so it's a it's another entry, right? Um, what do you mean it's another entry? Well. Yeah, it's a, it's, no. a, it's a quote from the verse. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, right. Vehutzrechu Yisrael Lichua. I don't know. Hutzrechu. Tsarich. It was necessary. Right. For some reason, the, the, the root tsarich, which we in modern Hebrew, we almost always use um, in that form. It's not really a pa'al because it's, it's almost like using the word tsarich adjectivally as a, as a verb, I, I, I am in need of. In um, rabbinic Hebrew, for some reason, when you're referring to the needs of somebody, it goes into an, uh, a very not often used form called huf'al, which is passive. Um, um, so, but it's translated as, and they needed. So is, Israel were in need of, hutzrechu. Shua, uh, help. Right, help or something. Okay. yes. Umoshe haya. Roe um, is uh, um, verse. That's, is that verse three? Gimel, a chapter of uh, uh, So he no. points us ahead here to the first verse of the next chapter, which I pointed ahead to. So, oh, oh, right, right. So, so if we if we follow his flow, so it was during those many days that he was there in Midian, something happened. What happened? The king of Egypt died, necessitating. Salvation, which he doesn't explain why that necessitates, necessitates salvation, because you would, we've already raised the question of if the king died, maybe that should have um, obviated the need for salvation. Yeah. And then, therefore, reader, that's why in a few verses you're going to get to Moshe Hayaroeh, that Moses was a shepherd, and we're going to get to the burning bush. I hope that's not a uh, spoiler alert for anybody. Okay, Uba'a. Um, Uva'at is what I have here. Interesting. What does that mean? What does that phrase mean? Um, um, in his hands, uh, um, I don't. Uvat, I don't know what that is. Ba, the word lavo. Ba. Um, it just came. So, and, um, but in the, it's a it's a it's a it's a. Um, it's a future tense because it's a vav hayipuch that and salvation would come um, on by Moses his hands hand. by Moses' hands. Yep. Lacha lachach. Therefore, lachach. Um, I can't receive the vowel. Nis mechu parshiot halalu. And then there's the end of the parentheses, and then there's another vayamot um, entry. Anyway, um, nis mechu. Uh, is um, what does samus mean? I'm thinking stum. I don't. I don't know. Samus means to be close, right? We oh. talk about a smichut is when we have two oh. nouns that are connected yes. to one another. So nismichu parshiot means these 
these two narrative sections, which narrative section, their narrative section that we just moved into this interlude of what's happening back in Egypt and the narrative section of what's happening in Moshe's life was about to happen in, in, in Moshe's life by the burning bush. That's why they were associated together. This is where, this is one of those places where Rashi telegraphs um, this for us. He's explained to us exactly why he's making this comment. He's, he's unnerved or he's curious about the fact that we have moved from Midian to Egypt to Midian. Because the Torah doesn't actually do that that frequently. Usually it's scene, next scene. It doesn't happen that often that we do with an interlude and then back to the scene that we were in. Right? You can make the argument that the next verse after, um, after Gershom is born and he says, I was, a, I was a stranger in a strange land, the next verse should be chapter 3, verse 1. Moshe, Yaro, Son, Yitro. And he was a shepherd and we know what's going to happen. But the Torah finds the, finds an, uh, the need to intersperse inter these three verses with what's happening in Egypt. We might find that to be not so noteworthy. Okay, yeah, we need an update. What's happening in Egypt? Rashi finds it noteworthy, and this is his answer. Okay, so now that we have a basic sense of, of what those words mean, comments on Rashi's comment, or questions on Rashi's comment, or ra- comments on Rashi's question, or questions on Rashi's question. Anyone? Well, the trigger um, to go back back and forth between scenes is the birth of Gershom. So like Moses was born, and, and that triggered all sorts of things, of the escape, and so now Gershom is born, so it triggers that he's... He's thinking about Egypt again. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Anyone else? Larry, Diane? Yeah, I was looking for the raised hand. Sorry. Again, just a short question or a comment. Rashi relates the um, to Moses only, whereas all the rest of the commentators, I think, in the translations basically are referring to the Israelites. In other words, the two scenes that you're talking about. We've been, we've been with Moshe all this time in what he's doing. And we go back to what's going on in Egypt. And I thought, before I read Rashi, that the beginning had to do, um, I'm reading Alter, and it happened when a long time had passed. Well, what passed where? Thinking about the Israelites, thinking about Egypt. But, but Rashi seems to be thinking about it came to pass during the many days during which Moses was sojourning in Midian. Interesting. So his... Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm just, I was going to repeat what I was saying. He's thinking that the long days are referring to Moses, and the rest of us are thinking, or most of the rest of us are thinking the long days are referring to the Israelites in Egypt. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really subtle thing you're noting. Of course... Time passed in both places, but you're asking, like, um, what's the specific reference to the notion of time passing? Are we supposed to be thinking about the time passing here or there? And you're right. It's also a huge difference in time passing because most of us are thinking about 400 years time passing in Egypt, the period of enslavement, whereas we assume that the time passing for Moses was probably a couple of years that he was in Midian. Even if we think and it was during those days and the next phrase is that the king of Egypt died, I would like to think that even if we were not being told by Rashi to think about Moshe, but think about Egypt, we're not thinking about the entirety of the enslavement. We're thinking about meanwhile. I don't know. I can't, I can't agree with it. That's pretty emphatic. 
So then, how did, so then translate the translate the sentence according to how you want to read it. Well, no, I actually want to read it the way Alter read it. And yeah. it happened when a long time had passed that the king of Egypt had died. I see, I see. Okay, now now I'm following your point better. That 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 this is saying after many, 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 many years of slavery, even going back earlier than than you know Mo- Moshe hitting the guy. After this enormous period of slavery, the guy dies. And you're saying Rashi is limiting the Bayamim Harabim Mahem just to the years of sojourn in Midian. Correct. That is different. And I hadn't thought about that. Um, maybe I'm so, sometimes I, I, um, I, I take art school to task by reading Shat through Rashi's commentary. I'm also so influenced by Rashi's commentary that I, I guess I've trained myself to see in the words Vayahi Vayamim Harabim Mahem to refer to the last couple of years, while, 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 while Moshe has been in Midian, something happened in Egypt. But I now, I now understand, I think um, Marshall read this before um, as well, that Alter is actually really reading those words differently. It's referring to the end of, of, of a long period of time. Diane, were you going to say something? Yeah. And so on a completely, completely differently, I have the um, uh, bi- biblical critics uh, biblical criticism, if they looked at this as like a cut and paste, the, the, a, like a misplaced, because actually in, in looking ahead at the next two psukim, um, there's not very much going on here. Yeah. It's, it's very repetitive and, and it's weird. This, yeah. this little section is very strange. It's a kind of section that if you were just to lane it or read it quickly, it wouldn't come out as weird. But now that Rashi raises our attention to it, particularly as we compare it to Alter's reading, it's weirder. It's weirder that this, these three verses exist right here, interrupting the director's action in a tent in Midian. Correct? Can I just jump back in for a second? Yes. Yeah. When, you, when you study a Talmud, and I'm not an expert, but I study with some wonderful people, and we're talking about these, the, the conversations that happen between the, 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 the sages but if you go to Cheskuni, there's a conversation happening here, too, because Cheskuni is about 100 years after Rashi. And Cheskuni answers Rashi directly, and he says, I'm going to read the translation here, it was during these many years, etc., the references to the 400 years that God had told Abraham it would take before his promise to, his, to him that his descendants would be redeemed from the land in which they would be slaves would be fulfilled. In other words, he's saying, hey, Rashi, you're wrong. It's not to Moses' time, it's to the Israelites' time. Maybe some other commentator comes back and says no, but there's this conversation going on. Great. And I'm now yet more thankful for this line of questions because it really does, um, remember I said before, the easiest Hebrew words are the hard, hardest ones to make sense of. So, so again, no one doubts what the words mean, but it's, it's a very different, um, it's, it's a very different way of understanding um, time and the scene if you go Rashi on the one hand, who's limiting it, a couple of years have passed and the, and the previous Pharaoh died to this is the beginning of the end of, of hundreds of years of, of predicted slavery. R- Ramban goes a little bit in that direction. We're not going to read him because we're just not, you can if you want to, and saying that he, he spends a lot of time talking about this notion that the Israelites enslavement in Egypt was predicted going back to Abraham and it was only, it was only going to end when it, when it was right, when it was, when it was the right time for it to end. It was never going to end earlier than that. It's all part of God's plan. 
So he's also thinking of it in the more epic arc, as opposed to Rashi limiting to it, li- limiting it to more of a meanwhile. Um, Joel, oh no, Sue is next. Sue, Joel, Rick. Um, yeah, it, and this might be just the obvious, but um, it also in these Yamim Rabim, it, it 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 gives a big space for for. Um, Moses to change his identity and if the Pharaoh dies in the meantime then the household that he grew up in is no longer there Um, and it it provides this big space in time for Moses to come back as uh, a saving individual that is is much more distant that Yamim Rabim becomes much more important that it's that that you know he'll waltz back in um, with with uh, co- to a community that barely or doesn't remember him. Yeah, really interesting. Thank you, Sue. Joel, and then Rick. I I also think this passage is necessary to. I mean, if you're taking God as a character, this gives him the motivation because we're about to go into the burning bush, and without the crying out and going up to God and God hearing it, God doesn't have a motivation. To, to the burning bush. And if I can add to my previous comment, maybe the reason that they're crying out now is because they knew that, that Moshe was their savior and that Moshe was only in Midian because the Pharaoh wanted to kill him. So they figured as soon as the Pharaoh dies, Moshe is going to come back and save us. Well, Pharaoh dies. Moshe isn't coming back. He needs a push. Yeah. And that first part of what you said, Joel, is really, I think, the most salient thing that Rashi is saying, that this is explaining, this section is explaining why it is we're about to get to the burning bush. Right. And 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 and, and we know that story. And Rashi kind of knows that we know that story. And the reason why we're about to get to the burning bush is that whether you take the Ramban, Ramban approach that the amount of time was over or there was a series of events that he died and they cried and and God only listened once they cried. That's when salvation was due. Yeah. Rick, and then we're going to go to the next verse. Uh, along the, the, the same lines, um, not a trope thing, but in verse 11, there's another vayihi bayamim hahem, just when Moses is uh, growing up. So that's a small version of the passage of time. The one here with the talisha, with, with the bigger... I agree with the Chizkuni that it's the whole time in Egypt. It's a bigger expanse there. It's it's a more important um, compared to verse eleven. That that passage there. Yeah, and and in that verse eleven, which is the first verse of the third Aliyah, um, there's they, they were not Yamim Rabim. They were just Yamim, yeah. and Rashi doesn't comment on it. He kind of leaves it alone. Interesting. Okay, great. That conversation really helped me understand or or sharpened. I'll tell you a couple of things. It, it sharpens what's interesting about Rashi's comment, and it makes me even more curious as to whether Rashi, Rashi actually said it. Remember we said in the beginning that this is, in some books, it says Rashi Yashan, some ancient version of Rashi, which we're not sure if it's the original one. Because it's so against the grain, he, Rashi often is read differently than Ramban, or actually reverse. Ramban usually often disagrees with Rashi. Um, it's less frequent that you have a Chizkuni kind of almost directly um, pushing against Rashi's read. So who knows? Maybe this is not original to Rashi. Okay, good. Um, 
Rick, you're still up because we have more Rashi's on that verse. And this is, remember I said to you that Rashi's going to read the series of events, the dying and why the dying leads to the crying out. And we think that the dying would not lead to a crying out. This is where Rashi is going to give his answer to that. Yeah, and this is outside that first parenthesis. Um, correct. So, Vayam Melech Mitzrayim. Correct. This seems to be uh, very obviously actually Rashi. Nitzara v'haya shochet tinokot Yisrael v'rochet bedamam. Okay, this is going to take some unpacking. Yeah. Do you recognize the root of Nitzara? The root is Tzayin, Tzadi, Resh, Ayin. Sarat. Sarat. Sarat is leprosy, yeah. yeah. Right. So nitztara is the heat pa'el of to be leprosied, right? To to be stricken with leprosy. So the first thing Rashi says is when the Torah says that he died, Rashi's saying, No, he didn't. I want you to be clear, that's what Rashi's saying. The Torah says that he died, and and Rashi's saying, No, he didn't. Why is Rashi saying no he didn't? Um, in the parentheses here, it says, and therefore may be spoken as... Uh, uh, spoken that's, a of it. That's, that's a different thing. Oh, different? Okay. Why would anyone say, if the Torah says that he died, that he didn't die? Um, Sue? Don't know. Well, the next sentence, that he used to slaughter the infants of Israel, they, uh, you know, he's, they, he's being punished in, in, you know, he's suffering some kind of, uh, like a horror. He doesn't just get to die he's going to go slink away in, in leprosy. Uh, uh, you know, when they had leprosy, didn't they just kind of, they got isolated and like dead, but living some kind of living hell. Okay. So the like dead is why Rashi is justified in reading the verb Vayamot. He died to mean not that he died. It's like it's almost like Monty Python. He's 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 mostly dead, or um, Princess dead. Bride, right? That he's he's living like a dead person. In particular, I want to show this to you. Hold on. Um, so if we look ahead to another scene with Moshe in the, the book of Bamidbar, Book of Numbers, chapter twelve, verse twelve, Come when in. Miriam speaks out against Moshe. By the way, interesting. Um, narrative connection speaks out against Moshe for having married Zipporah, which we just learned about. She struck, she struck him with leprosy. And Moshe says to God, Alna, please God, don't make it be to he kamate. Don't let, let her be like a dead person. She's not dead. But if you're stricken with that kind of a disease, you're, you're, you're death like, right? So Rashi has what to stand on in terms of saying the verb might be vayamot, but she, he didn't die. He just was strict with leprosy. But it doesn't answer my question, which we actually hinted at before. What, what, what's the purpose of explaining Vayamot as saying not that he died, but he got sick with leprosy? Why, remember we asked this, why it was strange that he died and then they cried out, right? So Rashi could say to you, in fact, this is what the super commentaries on Rashi say. I think we actually have it in our book here. Is there a guru in our book? Yeah. Um, look at... If you're in our note, if you're in our book, look at footnote 76, which is the last footnote on this this chunk of Rashi. So Rashi says, We haven't actually translated that part yet, but then there's there's uh, footnote 76, and what does it say? You shouldn't read it as it seems it should be read, which is that he actually died. 
the im came, if that's the case, kasha, that would be really hard to understand. The chi b'shvil shemait melech mitzrayim, would it have been that because the king of Egypt died, hayuna and achim in abodah, that's when they start crying out from their, their, their labor, their enslavement? Adarabah, the exact opposite. Hayalahem lismoach, they would have had a party. They would have celebrated. They would have sponsored a kiddush. Ella, Peresh, that's why Rashi explains it, Shanitztara, that he became leprous, right? That's according to the Gur Aryeh. Gur Aryeh, as we said before, is the commentary on Rashi by the Maharal of Prague. So Rashi is answering one of the questions we asked in the verse. What is the connection between his dying and them crying out? We gave different answers to the question. Rashi's answer is he didn't die. He didn't die. So what happened? He became leprous. And now we have to figure, now we have to figure out what the next phrase means. So he became leprous. And what happened, Rick, when he became leprous? Um, that he would kill the, uh, the babies of Israel and uh, bathe in their blood. Yuck. Right? Yeah. So what Rashi is um, bringing here is a midrash from Shemot Rabbah, which makes uh, Sue, the king, seem even more maniacal. Right? Actually, I don't know if it's a pitiful image of him slinking away, but more maniacal and Caligula-ish, right? That he would, he got this disease and he thought that the right potion to heal his skin would be this awful image of killing yet more Israelite babies, not just the firstborn males, and uh, bathing in their blood, Rahman al-Aslan, may God protect us from such an awful thing. And that extra level of depravity, that extra level of horror is what caused them to, to cry out. So it's a very fantastical midrash, which Rashi doesn't come up with. He just quotes it from Shemot Rabbah in his commentary to answer the question about why a death of a king would call them to cry out more. He, de- he doesn't go the route of the, the, the bullied kid who finally gets to cry out when the, when the wound is removed. It's the opposite. He didn't actually die. Things did get worse. They actually got worse because he stayed alive. And at, in, the, in the throes of this disease, he started acting even more pharaonic. Elon. So I'm trying to understand the origins of this particular Midrash, and maybe it'll give me some insight into the origins of Midrash in general, which is seems to be kind of a uh, like a random thought, meaning like what is what is that Midrash based on? Did somebody go, hey, this sounds good. Let me put it down. Where It, it just seems to kind of come out of nowhere with no basis in anything. I'm, I'm curious, and maybe that has to do with Midrash in general. Yeah. I mean, the simplest answer to your question, Elon, is yes, right? Like, sometimes I try to imagine if a tape recorder were on listening to the rabbis in the Beit Midrash or in the Schwitz house or walking down the street, just kind of letting their imaginations go, trying to understand these, this text that they've inherited that's sacred to them. And if there was a tape recorder in the Beit Midrash at JTS when I was there, it would have heard a lot of stuff. And if it recorded all of it, Right. Uh, some of it would be wild and ridiculous. Some of it would be irreverent. Some of it would be inappropriate. Some of it would be spot on. And if an editor came 200 years later with 15,000 shards of parchment re- with, re- with representations of what had been re- recorded, it would have been a very interesting thing to figure out what made the cut and what did not make the cut. And the Midrashic tradition that the I'm going to say this plainly, not in any way a judgmental way, that the non-scholarly person, the person who doesn't have like a PhD in Midrash gets, are some of the 
either the most reasonable explanations of the text or the ones that are kind of so so powerfully telling the narrative that they make it into the canon. Like it's amazing how many um, Jews do not realize that the story of Moshe burning himself on the coal, which is why he uh, got the lisp, is not in the Torah, right? That's in, in the Midrash. Somehow that, that, and smashing the idols, that, that one survives. But those, there are literally hundreds of other Midrashim around that same moment in the Torah that exist in classic and less well-known Midrashic collections that are bizarre and, and stem from, if you really want to break it down, an individual rabbi sitting in a chair in Pumpadita, Babylonia, saying, hmm, how else can I explain this? Right? So some of, the, some of it is really um, um, off shot. And Rashi's task, which is monumental, is to try to take from that tradition and choose the one that he thinks has the best chance of either being shot-like, the simple meaning, or at least answering the question that he's bothered by. And for some reason, he's really bothered by this notion of why a death of the oppressor would lead to um, would, would lead would lead to more crying out. Um, so this is from Shmot Rabbah. It's actually in a pretty um, a, a pretty uh, w- the, the most well-read narrative midrash on the book of Shmot. But there's a lot of stuff there that we would find even more wild than this. I'm sure, Elon, that when you were, when your father was in rabbinical school, before the internet and before some of these modern collections, one of the most important books on all the students' shelves, and it's still a very important book on my shelf, is an unbelievable book called Legends of the Jews. It was written by Louis Ginsburg. Louis Ginsburg, Rabbi Louis Ginsburg, was one of the great Jewish minds of the 20th century. We talk about you know, having a, a photographic mind talk about like literally knowing the entire rabbinic canon almost by heart what he does and i think it's a seven or eight volume set he starts with with the creation and he goes to the death of moshe and he and he tells the story he tells the story weaving in tens of thousands of midrashim and but he tells it as a single narrative you can read it as a single narrative even though it's culling from so many so many in, 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 midrashic interpretations and on each sentence of these first three or four volumes there's a footnote and the footnote you have to go to the final three volumes of the seven volume set and then each footnote has like 17 different sources where it comes from and if you read that as opposed to just reading the torah it's wild and crazy and rich. And then it reads like Greek mythology and, um, you know, um, uh, you know, mo- modern, modern fantastical fiction because the rabbis had powerful imaginations and everything got recorded. What comes down to like the average Jew in the pew who does a little bit of study is a, a more concentrated and focused version of, of that stuff. This is a long way of saying this is an example of a pretty wild image that exists amongst many, many, many other wild images that Rashi says, yeah, that, that's my answer here. I can't, I can't think of a more satisfying way to explain why the verb bayamod, which we all means, all know means to die, results in their crying out more. This is the only thing that satisfies me. Um, and uh, I'll say one last sentence and then if people have comments, we're, we have chosen for these years um, to study Rashi. I'll tell you something I've never done as a rabbi. I've never offered a, a Midrash class. I never have. I, 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 I reference Midrash all the time, but I've never said, we're going to study Breshit Rabbah. We're going to study Shmot Rabbah or Yalkut Shimoni. And if we did, we, we would be immersed in this stuff because on every verse, there would be so many more 
weirdo interpretations of the verse than we're getting in Rashi's um, culling of that material. And maybe when we finish the book of Shemot, I'll, I'll, I'll teach a class on Shemot, on Shemot Rabbah. Okay. Um, anything else before we go to the next verse? Going once, going twice. Um, Rebecca, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. Do you want to read verse 24 for us? Well, I can read. <laughs> oh, there are two Rebecca's. I was asking in this particular situation, Rebecca Menes, um, and then I owe Rebecca uh, Friedman the next time. Sorry, Rebecca okay. Friedman. Um, can you hear me? We can hear you, yes. Okay. Okay. Okay, and the translation is God heard their I'm not sure if Nakatan comes from Naka, from the she-camel, or it's just some other way of saying cry. Right, Uh, so it's probably some other way of saying cry. As we said beforehand, Unculus, the Aramaic translation um, from the first century, translates it literally as the exact same word that he translated the word Shabbatam, their cry, into the previous verse. So it seems to be some kind of a synonym. Rashi will help us out a little bit. Um, and God remembered um, his promise, his covenant, um, remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Good. Okay. So um, however we understand the rationale for the cry in the previous verse, going back to pure pshat, God, or as Rick will want to remind us, the angels, gods, this is the plural form of God, heard those crying out, and God remembers Brito, God's covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, right? So um, there might be lots of questions welling up. I always have questions um, on this verse. Um, Let's hear it. Who has some questions they want to raise on this verse before we look at the Rashi? No one's got any questions? Not forcing the issue, but Larry, yes, no? Yeah. I mean, Diane said it first. Did, I mean, the obvious. Did God forget? So it, it gets to the, it gets to the, in, in English, to re, I've always thought that, that to remember and to forget are really interesting verbs because it can mean so many things in terms of act, actively, passively, inferentially. To remember can be imply that you forgot and you suddenly remember or someone reminded you, but it can also mean that you are actively remembering like we do on on Yiskor. It's not that we forgot. Right. Just we're bringing into our memory. So the question here about what the, I like the way Joel put it, um, the character of God, who is in this case Elohim, um, is he simply bringing to mind, or did the cries actually um, jolt him into, uh, oh yeah, I made this promise, I forgot. Right. It's a really important question, and someone should have, haven't yet done so, write a dissertation on the concept of remembering and forgetting in the Torah, because oftentimes they're actually combined, right? When, when, when the cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh's side, the Torah says, Yosef, he didn't remember Yosef, and he forgot him. So if we don't want to read that as redundant, we have to find out, we have to read a difference between not remembering and forgetting, forgetting, and 
In the other way, our obligation vis-a-vis Amalek, Zachor al-Tishkach, remember, don't forget. So the, the Torah has, has something going on. And I, and I love how you put it, Larry. So if, if we just pull up a little bit, like um, if, if a memory comes to my mind right now, I, I, I gave you that memory before of being, a, being bullied um, and getting to my mother's car. Well, I hadn't forgotten it. It's just I'm recalling it, right? Is there a difference between recalling and remembering? It's, it's, all, it's all there. Sometimes we actually remember something we'd forgotten, right? Like a trivia question in, the, in a trivia league, uh, Larry, and we had forgotten it and now we remember it. And that's different than bringing something like back into our consciousness. So which one does God do, right? We, and which is worse to imagine God doing? Is it worse to imagine that God had forgotten the covenant that had to be reminded or is it worse to the that God had not forgotten the covenant and had let them um, suffer? It's hard to, as we think about a beneficent God, it's hard to imagine which is the worst image, right? That, that, that had to be reminded or did not need to be reminded, it just didn't care. So, so Vayis Kor Elohim Epito is a really important three-word phrase. Uh, Marshall, then Rick? Yeah, the focusing, as Larry was starting to focus on the word Elohim, God represents, that form Elohim represents Midat Hadin, mm. the aspect of justice. And we just read in the Parsha this past week, I guess it was, Abraham with God. Should the judge of the world not do justly? And so there really people are saying here, Elohim, you know, if you're such a great God, don't you hear our Na'aka? Yeah. And aren't you going to do anything about it? Yeah. And by the way, don't you remember your discuss- the breach which you formed with Abraham? Yeah. And also with Isaac and with Jacob? Come on, let's uh let's get some action going here to- on our behalf. So on that note when 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 God qua Elohim is thought of as the God of Dean of judgment whereas God qua Adonai Yudhevave is thought of as the God of Rachmi mercy, the notion of God of judgment is is thought of in in the harshest of ways, right? Mm-hmm. That, we want yeah. to be in relationship with the God of mercy and not the God of justice. So it actually, had it been by his core Adonai at Bito, we would have thought if we're reading through this prism, <laughs> that the benevolent God mercifully remembered his covenant. If it's by his core Elohim, you can make the argument that it's the, it's the God of judgment who now realizes that Pharaoh deserves yeah. the execution of judgment, right? Yes. That it's not, it's not the Elohim vis-a-vis the Israelites. It's the Elohim vis-a-vis Pharaoh and, mm-hmm. and the harsh judgment that Pharaoh is going to mm-hmm. is about to get. God, Pharaoh is about to meet Elohim many, many times over. Rick and then Renee. Hi. Okay. So on remembering and not forgetting, um, you put your keys in your pocket, right? You, you know that they're there. So when you're going to your car to, to get something out of it, you're not remembering that your keys are in your pocket. You just know that they're there, right? So it, it's not like you're forgetting and then remembering. It's just, you know, you know. So I just thought of something. There's four different ways of uh, uh, crying out, the Shabbatam and the Vayizaku and all those. There's four different verbs here with God doing things, going into the next sentence too, sorry. But Vayishma, right? Is he not hearing the whole time or is he just hearing now? And then Vayiskor, is he not remembering the whole time? 
no, he's remembering that. And then the exit, he saw, and then he knew. He, he didn't know the whole time. Of course he knew the whole time. Um, so I just thought I'd bring that up. It's a re- really nice mashup of the, of the four synonym-like uh, concepts of their crying and the four verbs applied to God in these verses. Great. Vaishma, Vaishkor, we haven't gotten there yet, but, and Vayar, um, that, that That's a wonderful pickup. Um, Renee, I think this will be your, the last comment. I was just curious if the word Na'aktama has any kind of kesher to Linok, to a nurse. Uh, no, Linok is Yud Nun Kuf. Yanak is the root. This is Nun Aleph Kuf. So the Aleph in this is, um, it, they're, they're alliterative, but I do not think that they're etymologically connected. Okay. Um, I was going to say one last thing before we go. Hold on a second. Oh, I wanted to read to you how Ever Fox translated it because it's really interesting, particularly given the conversation we had about what memory is and what it isn't. Ever Fox, who knows that the verb least core means to remember, at least that's what we render in English, does not use the word remember at all. God hearkened to their moaning. Like he reads Yves core as a response, not, not a, not a, um, um, sorry, the Vaishma is the, um, is the hearken. So forget that. And then God called to mind his covenant with Abraham, right? Called to mind means that the way Everett Fox is reading by his core is not, it was forgotten and now remembered, but it went from the back of the mind to the front of the mind, which again raises the question as to which is a more troubling image of a God. That means that when our plea, our suffering was in the back of God's mind, it just wasn't on God's radar. And now it's to the, coming to the front of the mind? Um, or is it um, a very natural way of understanding how things happen in the human world and in the divine world? That sometimes we, we, we don't remember everything all the time. Uh, Marshall, Larry, then we'll call it a day because we're over time. Yeah, the, your last comment is echoed in the JPS commentary where it says where the word remembered embraces concern and involvement and is active, not passive, mm. so that it eventuates in action. Got it. Good. Larry, you get the final word. Thank you. This goes back to Diane's comment about um, uh, b- biblical criticism, and maybe this was in, uh, injected. This, if I'm if I'm right, I just went back. This is the first reference to God, Elohim, in the Book of Shemot. In these mm. in these verses, up till now, God is absent in the entire story. Now, I may be wrong because I, I went back quickly. I don't think we've talked about God in the entire Book of Shemot until just now. Verse 23. Second chapter. Second chapter. I didn't even notice in the first chapter. I, again, it could be wrong. But maybe someone find a reference. I didn't see a reference to either Elohim um, or Adonai. The uh, midwives feared God. There's yeah. an Elohim there. Okay, right. thank, you. thank you. God isn't active, but God is, is, is referred. Really interesting. I wish you a happy Thanksgiving and a Shabbat Shalom in advance. And be safe out there because it's rough out there. Bye, everybody. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.